Hi, my name is Kira McMahon and welcome to Psychological Insights for Understanding COVID-19 and Media and Technology. So this is the uh, first um, interview of this podcast series. Um, here I spoke with Professor Norbert Schwartz, who is the author of the first chapter in the book, which is The Psychology of Fake News. We had, uh, I knew this was going to be a good one to start the series with, but it's actually, it was an incredible discussion. Um, we talk about psychology of fake news. We talk about false information. We talk about social media. We talk about design of social media. We talk about psychological science. Um, we also talked about pand pandemic contexts. We also talked about trust and um, emotions and repetition, all different features of conversations and how uh, misinformation and information is generally spread from one person to another. Absolutely fascinating discussion. We talked about, you know, media literacy, critical thinking. We talked about the man in the White House whose lies must not be spread and lots of other things. It is an absolutely fascinating discussion. I'm so proud to actually bring this discussion to you with such a highly respected international scholar. Um, so here it is. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to uh, Psychological Insights for Understanding COVID-19 and Media and Technology. My name is Kira McMahon. Uh, I'm the editor of this book and the host of this podcast. And I am delighted today to be speaking with Professor Norbert Schwartz, who is the author of uh, the first chapter in the book, which is largely concerned around the psychology of fake news. Um, Norbert Schwartz is a provost professor in the Department of Psychology and the USC Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California and a co-director of the USC Dornside Mind and Society Center. Uh, professor Schwartz has uh, I can only say a, a very distinguished career with a huge opus about which I would love to quiz you about many, many aspects. But for t the present purposes, uh, we're going to be sticking uh, to the, the pandemic context and the psychology of fake news, which is what your chapter was about. So I guess to to kick this off, I'm just sort of wondering, could you tell me a little bit about so your chapter was part of uh, another edit collection with um, the psychology of fake news, accepting, sharing, and correcting misinformation, which you published with Rainier Greifender, uh, Mariella, Mariella Jaff, and Erin Newman. So could you tell us a little bit about the background to that book and the background to your chapter? Yeah, the background to that book was essentially a political debate following the 2016 election in the United States and the discussion around Brexit, both of which were heavily influenced by fake news. And uh, there was a lot of work coming out in different areas of the social sciences, from computer science to political science to psychology. And at that time, uh, Rainer Greifeneder, who's at the University of Basel in Switzerland, uh, was a visitor in our center at the University of Southern California. And we thought it would be useful to bring together researchers from these different areas. That took a while. And eventually, with the funding of the Swiss National Science Foundation, we had a lovely conference at Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. Oh, very nice. And out of that conference comes this book, which cuts all the way from 
a librarian writing about the fate of retracted scientific papers to political scientists talking about the perception of uh, fake news and their influence on political debates, psychologists talking about correction procedures and so on. And that makes for a nice diverse collection of things around fake news with different perspectives. And we are particularly pleased that this book is open access. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the Routledge website, that book can be downloaded, the PDF of that book can be downloaded for free. It's, I have to say, it's it's a fantastic idea because I, I think, to my mind, within this sort of space, when we're talking about fake news and so on, that I I think that the space, as, as I think you're kind of alluding to, there's a lot of domination of these conversations by political scientists, communication scholars, uh, and so on. And I, I think it's, it's a great addition to these conversations to have pure psychological expertise coming into it. And I I mean, the thing that really struck me uh, first within your chapter was that you have a lot of very detailed uh, cognitive um, and sort of social and decision-making processes uh, research, but there's you, you're kind of, uh, you're making it simpler for us, but it's also kind of scary at the same time. And one of the things that I think you mentioned earlier on is that uh, when you're talking about retweeting without um, reading the article, and I was like, "This, yes, this is this is this is the this is the key to this." And you you say it's very simple to know, similar to normal conversation, and that sort of that kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I was like, "I hadn't thought of that before." It's not. Uh, it's not a computational thing. This is actually what people do anyway. People will repeat pieces of information. And it's that sort of linking between things that you start to think between how we actually normally converse and how the conversations are shifting online. And I think that's a great insight into how this fake news is spreading. So to me, and, my question is, oh yeah. And importantly, you're not fact-checking everything as you go through the day. When you're having conversations with others, you basically assume that the others are cooperative communicators, as Paul Quais, a philosopher of language, has put it, are cooperative communicators who try to give you information that is relevant to the current topic, to what you're doing, that is informative and comprehensible for you. Mm -hmm. And you're not out there thinking all the time, may it be different? What's wrong here, right? You wouldn't make it through the day. Uh, you only do the fact checking and the critical thing when you have reason to believe that the other guy is not cooperative and tells you something that feels wrong in some way. Yes. And a lot of the research that uh, my students and I have been doing is about what makes it feel wrong. I mean, when does a message feel right so that you kind of float along? And what does it take for you to feel, oops, there may be something wrong here, I better pay attention. Yes. And we take it for granted that your default is really not to check. Mm -hmm. Your default in daily life, unless you have reason to do otherwise, is to kind of float along. Yeah, and I, I, there was something you mentioned as well there in the chapter that and you, you sort of said it's, it's not a completely supported research finding, but there is some evidence to suggest that actually comprehension of a message 
before anything requires a certain level of acceptance that that message is true. And that's that's actually mind-blowing, really. I mean, it, that's probably only in certain conditions and so on. But that is something which I think is it's a very important research finding, which people need to really think about that we were talking all of this sort of stuff about fake news, but to actually even read the sentence, you have to kind of take it on board to some extent. Exactly. I mean, you, you do not fully have to believe it, but you actually have to entertain what the other person is saying. Mm -hmm. And you're forming a representation in your own mind of what that message is. Otherwise, you can't make sense of the sentence. So understanding a piece of communication always entails some positive affirmative way of thinking about that unless you know in advance that the other guy is about to get you in yeah. which case you may immediately switch right. to thinking about how would it be otherwise right but it takes a lot to get there yeah it, it's it, not your default Yep. And you wouldn't be able to make it through your day. You would never get anything done in the end. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very... <laughs> it's, it, it sort of puts us then in a position. And I was talking to a colleague of mine who works in the startup industry there the other day. And he was saying about, he was asking me sort of about insights into psychology of trust and the psychology of decision-making. And he was like, well, who is doing research on... Uh, trust in websites and how people trust websites and who was the thought leader on this and I didn't really know so I kind of winged it and I said I'm pretty sure I'm right on this I said I'm, I think that most of that research has been done about 10 or 15 years ago nobody's doing that kind of work now because uh, we have a sort of pattern to how websites are built and they all sort of like Facebook and Twitter and so on they all look very similar so the design element is there and then like you will trust the website that looks similar to the ones you're most familiar with and I think that's a kind of a context element to how communication happens particularly with social media and it, you, you allude to this in a number of places that it, social media is designed to make these messages easy to comprehend they're all short and they're all simple and you know there's emojis i suppose in there as well but it's designed to make to make you assume that what you're reading is true and that means that you're just going to trust what you read there anyway or you're 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 you're, you're yeah uh, i mean there's a number of things that that come together so when people do think about whether something is true so basically relying on five major criteria. Have I heard this before? Which means do other think so, otherwise I wouldn't have heard it before. Is it compatible with other stuff I know? Is it internally consistent or is it full of contradictions? Does it come from a credible source? And is there some supporting evidence? All of that stuff, unfortunately, and, and all of that is reasonable. Those are rational, plausible, good criteria. But uh, they all come uh, with a correlate that is interesting. Uh, when something is not compatible with other stuff you know, you stumble. It slows you down. You have some intruding thoughts. When you have never heard it before, it's all new to you. It slows you down. It's a little harder to understand than if it's familiar materials that you have heard before. 
and so on. And as you go to these five major criteria, it turns out that whenever the answer is positive, that this is credible and probably true, it is easier to process. Mm -hmm. And it seems that that feeling of ease of processing is very crucial in deciding whether we allocate attention to something and think twice about it. So we can make the same sentence seem less true by making the color contrast harder to read, or by picking a print font that is harder to read, or by using an acoustic setting that gives you a little bit of noise, like a bad Zoom conversation with a little bit of noise in the background, which makes the message a little less credible, makes it more likely that people think about the details and so on. Mm-hmm. So what we end up with is uh, is good evidence for a very simple rule of thumb. As long as your thoughts flow smoothly, you nod along. Yeah. It's, it's only when something goes wrong that you suddenly, I mean, stop in that. And on social media, that's uh, all of these criteria um, are easy to satisfy in a sense, both when you go about it carefully and when you rely on that feeling of familiarity, because the message is easy to read. That's how the art is signed. Uh, It is liked by your friends. It is posted by your friends who are credible. Mm -hmm. Other friends like it and repost it. It gives you a lot of exposures. You think that many people believe it because you see it over and over again and so on. So when you go through the boxes, of what are the criteria that something is likely to be true, social media checks all of them mm-hmm. very easily, both at the thoughtful level, analytic level, and at that intuitive level where familiar things that I've seen before that flow easily in my mind seem more credible than unfamiliar things. So in, in that light, I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, because I, I couldn't, I. I dug a little bit about this, about the kind of the design changes, which the likes of Facebook and Twitter introduced over the last year. And I, 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 I thought that like they, maybe they relied on, you know, this type of evidence of cognitive psychology evidence and so on, but I couldn't find anything around it. I presume they're just AB testing and seeing how it works. What do you, as a professor of psychology, studying the psychology of fake news. What do you think about, say, for example, Twitter putting in this warning about, do you want to read the article first before quote quoting it or before retweeting it? Well, I think it's a good step. Uh, it, it's a good step. It's useful because it gives you a little prompt to think twice. Hmm. Uh, when you look at the initial Twitter reports, they felt that it increased uh, opening the article before you retweet it by about 40%. Uh, so that means there's 60% uh, left there uh, to be uh, waiting for some other solution. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly helps. My guess, my prediction would be uh, that it mostly helps when you already have a little bit of a doubt that says something not quite right. Mm-hmm. It probably does not work when it has been tweeted by people you like has been liked by other people you like and you find credible because you feel that your 
own social network has done some of the cognitive work for you, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it is shared by others. I mean, this is like uh, the difference of, of an email that comes from an unknown source or the email that comes from a respected colleague. Yeah. You are less likely to double check. Yeah. And I, I guess that's the whole point of social media is that others yes. for you. So you go, kind of, well, my friends have all retweeted. It must be fine. And and if <laughs> if they're, if the article is wrong, well, then I guess we're all in it together. So who cares? But I think there's this is something to me about this that maybe they should have done this before. Maybe it should have been all like maybe that's the way it should have been designed the whole way through. And I guess I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on the pipeline between you know psychological science and its research findings, which would lead you to encourage this kind of design change in the first place, and how that would actually feed into you know, the, the design of these things and the engineers making these decisions and the owners of this product, is that always going to be just a kind of a ship's passing in the night kind of relationship or should there be an official or structured relationship, do you think? Well, I mean, a structured relationship would be very useful, right? Uh, I mean, for experimenters in, uh, who do basic research on this, it's often difficult to see what the long how this would play out in the long time. Mm -hmm. Many of our studies are really one-shot studies. So we expose you to something, we see what it does, when you believe it, or do you, you know, share it or not share it. Uh, but we are not able to tap into your network. So I cannot send you a message that looks as if it comes from your friends. I would ideally want to be able to do random assignment, right? And send to some people the same message as if it came from their own friends yeah. and to other people the same message from some guys they don't know mm. and see how these various things test out, right? I mean, as I suggested earlier, I think that open it and read it before you retweet it works better when it comes from a source I don't have that much trust in. Yeah. If yeah. it comes from a you know, close friend and three other friends have liked it and I think they're competent, then I probably won't go through that hassle. Hmm. But it's very hard for us to actually test that without having access to your network. And fortunately, so, so, no, the features of our social networks fortunately do not allow us to do that. Uh, that is stuff that uh, no, would require much more access to the network itself than typically as researchers we have. And of course, that's that becomes then a problem for the replication of studies. You know, you know, can you actually back up? You know, you know, do this. I mean, you can do experimental things, and you can get another lab to do it, and so on. But if you're based yeah. on a social media platform, which in itself may change its design in a couple of weeks' time, you're, you're always going to be left at this position. That how do we know that we're actually getting the thing? You're you're coming at a moving target. Um, which I guess leads me to, I think, a critical question for the book uh, in terms of the, the, the wider understanding of where we are now in this awful pandemic, which is hopefully coming to an end soon. But I mean, I, I, I passed this question on to you and at the time I wrote it, I was like, this will be interesting. And then I said to myself, mm, it mightn't be too interesting a question, but do you think that anything that has happened over the last eight months 
um, has significantly altered your understanding of the psychology of fake news and all of these things. For example, how the misinformation has spread about the vaccines and of, uh, all of these different things that have happened. And is there anything that you kind of go, oh, I wish I could study that now and see how it compares to previous studies and so on? Yeah, uh, I, I think... I think it hasn't really changed how we think about the basic processes in this, but it has highlighted a few things that we would not have anticipated, for sure not anticipated. One is the power of um, people in high places, let's say, let's call them Donald Trump, <laughs> to spread misinformation in very efficient ways. And that's number one. The role of the media and how you balance that in spreading that nonsense, mm. right? You could, on the one hand, say, well, I mean, it's uh, not responsible journalism to actually spread when the president says, you know, oh, I mean, it's uh, it will be gone tomorrow or it's a political hoax or masks don't do anything or who knows what, right? I mean, all, all that stuff, which was so blatantly false. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, you can also say, look, responsible journalism requires that I'm telling you that the president is spreading false information. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, every time I say that and I repeat his false information, I spread it even by warning you. Mm -hmm. And many years ago, we've done a terrible study, which is worth keeping in mind. Uh, we gave people younger and older people, we gave people statements about the health benefits of various uh, supplements and so on. And we stamped them very clearly that the Food and Drug Administration has determined this is true or this is false. Okay. And we showed that to you and you got about 40 of these statements, something like shark, shark cartilage is good for your arthritis, false mm -hmm. and um, and later on we asked you we, we showed you those statements along with some others and we asked you to tell us whether they're true or false okay mm -hmm. uh, very blatant warnings and you got the warning once or you got the warning three times when we tested you immediately everything looked fine uh, we told you it's false and you were likely to say it's false. No, and you made some errors because it was 50 and you misremembered some, but everything looks cool. We come back to other people. Instead of testing them immediately, we test them three days later. Now, everything is a bit of a blob, right? Memory decays and so on. And now, so more often we have told you that that statement is false, the more likely you were to think that it may be true. Oh. Because now you hear again, shark cartilage is good for your arthritis. Well, is that true or false? You can't remember. But it feels like you've heard about this stuff before, which you did, we told you, but you can't remember where you heard it. And as a result, the acceptance of the false statements was 40% higher when we told you three times that they are false than when you never heard it before. Oh. Right? Yeah. When you never heard it before, you had a hit and miss. And if we told you three times it was false, we reduced that in, by, under immediate testing and we increased acceptance 
under delay testing. And it was worse for people 70 and older because your memory goes to hell. Mm -hmm. But what stays is that feeling that you kind of heard something about shark cartilage and arthritis and so on before. And maybe there's something to it. Oh, so that's that, that's <laughs> quite concerning then. Um, and that, it, it, it reminds me a lot of, and you talk about Donald Trump and, and, and journalists and so on, but I also see this happening on a much lower level when you know your average ordinary person uh, i see I, I like i spend a lot of time on twitter saying this to people that um don't quote tweet people who are spreading misinformation like if you're saying look at this this terrible lie you're only helping to spread it you're only helping yeah. to on um, that person to gain notoriety and to increase their you know audience but you're also I think that's the really crucial part as well is that you are making that message travel further making more people hear it and therefore ultimately believe it and and many and and many tests of these i mean of correction procedures are limited in time and they're looking at the short-term effect and if i just told you it's wrong yeah you know it and you can tell it again the interesting thing is and you forget it. So it's also not that somehow next week it will suddenly pop in your mind and you will know the wrong thing. What's happening is that next week when you hear it again in some other context, it feels more familiar. Yeah, because it, right? yeah. It, it feels more familiar and that gives it some more credibility than it otherwise would have. And that's, I think it, it reminds me a lot of how these, because you, you mentioned a lot in your chapter about repetition, that if they, if you're simply repeating the claim, no matter how crazy it is, it gains a familiarity within the audience. And that's another sort of feature of social media that it makes it so easy to continually yeah. churn out information. And that means then that, and that this is what these, like, you know, negative actors or bad actors are doing is consistently churning out this information through the social media platforms and making it more familiar to people and it becomes as you're saying that it becomes sort of the messages become shorn almost of the understanding that it's a lie that just be it sort of withers i guess on the wayside and you just remember the core basic factor of or the core piece of information of it and that's you're just accept that that's true yeah and and let me add to that um, that that's only only part of the thing. Uh, social psychologists have for decades studied something that was well, basically described as mental correction. And I'll tell you about a classic study by Lee Ross and his colleagues in the 1970s. So suppose you're, you know, we give you a, a little bunch of little vignettes about people and we tell you that you have to identify the ones who may commit suicide. And uh, then you get fictitious feedback. Depending on condition, I say, yeah, hi, Karen. I mean, you did really well at this. You're extremely good uh, at, at identifying people who may commit suicide. Or I tell you the opposite, that you really suck at this task. And uh, what happens? Well, I mean, the first thing that would happen is I tell you you're really good at this. And you would 
know, explain that to yourself. You say, well, gee, I'm that surprising, but you know, I, I knew this girl, Susie, who killed herself. I mean, that was all the way back in first grade. So I was kind of sensitized to this very early on. And that may be why I'm quite good at it. In the other condition, you would say, well, you know, I mean, that's not surprising. The only one I know was this girl, Susie, who killed herself in first grade. And that's a long time ago. And I was a kid. So what would I know? Right. Okay. Now I come back and I tell you that I'm really sorry. Uh, I, I confused the feedback. You, you got the wrong feedback. Uh, it's, it's, it's not true. Uh, but by the way, I mean, as background data, how good are you really at this? Oh. And what happens is even when you completely incredibly drop the, the false information, what you are left with is what you have just done as your own cognitive work. You have just found some good reasons why it's not implausible that you may be sensitive to, to mm -hmm. suicide because you have had a case in first grade already, which made you really sensitive. Or you're a clueless fool on this because the only person you knew was in first grade, which is a long time ago. Yeah. And that information is correct. And you do not have to revise that. That stays with you. You have changed your own perception of yourself by selectively drawing on pieces that now make it for you more likely or less likely that you're really good at this task. Even so, the prompt that got you to do that is completely discredited. And we have many examples like that, where people completely accept that the false information was false, but they have now generated a lot of good reasons why it might have been so. And that mental reorganization in your own mind stays with you. That's not discredited. You really knew Susie in the first grade and she really killed herself. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating because it kind of reminds me a, a little bit of something as well of something I think you mentioned in your work a, a, a while ago about survey, survey interviews not being really interviews, they're actually conversations and it's a social context that happens to these things. And I think that's a really important way of looking at surveys. And I suspect it applies just as well to written surveys and online surveys and, and as well to social media, that it becomes an interaction between you and the social media service in trying to understand who you are. And it, you know, there's some work that's been done on how to, well, they haven't really said that YouTube radicalizes people, but people start to start to say, well, this is this is the information that's being presented to me. I've followed the algorithm and it is showing me all of this information. And that is, even though it's quite different to why, how I might think of myself normally, that becomes who I am. And I think we're in uh, a very strange situation. And I, I know I, I, I'll come back to again uh, what you say towards the end of um the chapter you say that social media appears to be designed to make questionable messages seem true. It's something along those lines that you say, and yeah. I wonder what your sort of thinking on this is long term, because you sort of touch on it in that chapter. But how do you think that this is? Is this actually changing us in very subtle ways that we, as because as you say, even if it is changing us into something else we might just, we're not going to deny it because we haven't taken on the false information. Yeah, I mean, you're getting 
look, I mean, there used to be a time, <laughs> once upon a time, right? Uh, we turned on the television or we opened the morning newspaper and most citizens got roughly the same news mm -hmm. because we were watching whatever, the BBC or, or the ABC or we were reading the New York Times. And there was some kind of a shared version of reality that we all endorsed mm -hmm. because we kind of got fed the same stuff. As social media progressed, as you know, cable television came on, you already got some of that, that you suddenly had a much wider range of things that you could select, which on first glance seems like a good thing because now you can get news from the source that's close to you and that shares your view. Yeah. And then social media made that more extreme by allowing you to you know, narrow that down more and more. But in the process, we developed a situation in which we all have our own separate shared separate realities mm. that we share with some people and not with most other people yeah and i think that's where we are we mm. are no longer living in the same reality and have different opinions about what we like or dislike about it but we're living in somewhat different realities if you look at the united states these days and you look at uh, no, Trump voters and Trump fans and their perception of COVID, then it's really not that bad, you know, because most people survive it, right? And uh, the young people are all fine and so on. And it's really a hoax. Uh, and that may now be changing that uh, you know, it has hit uh, uh, the more conservative states. Initially, it started at the coasts. And um, you're no longer just having different opinions about a shared state of affairs, mm -hmm. but you're no longer agreeing what the state of affairs even is, mm. right? Uh, how, what are the real numbers? And uh, that kind of thing is worrisome. And I think social media is a, is a current most extreme version of that mm. because it allows fringe sources of news to become widely shared and to become the shared and mutually consolidated way of seeing the world within a given network. Yes. And you're not seeing the other guys because the algorithms protect you from ever having to see the other guy's stuff. Yeah. You don't even have to say yourself, I don't like it, right? I mean, after a few weeks, you no longer see it. I mean, for the 2016 election in the US, the Wall Street Journal had uh, a wonderful website, which they called Blue Feed, Red Feed. Have you seen that thing? Yeah. Uh, and it was basically said, no, it was basically started by someone clicking on a lot of liberal stuff or clicking on a lot of conservative stuff. And then you leave it alone. And the algorithm does the rest. And a few weeks later, you have no overlap in these sites. It's uh, that kind of thing is it leaves you quite worried, I think, is is where I am at the moment with that. And I guess what, what I would kind of boil this down to is what would you think is the most important um, message that we should bring to I mean, maybe the general public or to policymakers or to what, what's the, what's the soundbite or what's the, the single most important research finding or project that we could actually put into the public domain about this? 
I think the most important thing is do not repeat false information. Mm -hmm. Every repetition, even when you repeat it to say it's false, increases its familiarity and increases the ease with which it can be processed when you hear it again. And that facilitates its acceptance next time you're not paying attention. Yeah. That's in my eyes a big thing. The second thing is, it's really in many ways not about knowledge. It's in many ways about your experience when you get the information and when you think about it. Let me give you an, an example. Uh, when you ask people, how many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? Most people say two, because it takes two to make babies and it seems very obvious. About 80% in our experiments say two. And when you later ask them, who was, what's the name of the guy with the ark? Most of them know that that was Noah. Mm -hmm. But they didn't notice. When I asked you the question, nor did you, right? I didn't. You, no, because you're thinking about what I'm asking you. How many animals of each kind did Moses take on the ark? The question is about how many animals, and that's what you're thinking about. And you miss that it wasn't Moses, okay? Now, if I change that and I say, how many animals of each kind did Obama take on the ark? You immediately notice that something's off, right? Uh, you notice it because the discrepancies are too large. Mm -hmm. But Moses and Noah are both you know, old guys in the Bible having something to do with water and so on. And so you kind of float along with that. And that's how we accept fake news. It's these little things that are not that crazily blatant. And you kind of nod along and you don't get it. And your knowledge does not protect you. Unless you stumble when you hear it. That's when I stick Obama in there and tell you something about Obama and the Ark. That makes you stumble and that's when you listen up. But otherwise, you're just not along. And the more we repeat false stuff, the more we increase that. And knowing what's right is not protective. Yeah. It's not enough. And I found that that was a, a, another chilling passage in, in, in your chapter when you said that... Um, the conditions for correcting misinformation are generally quite far away from the conditions in which people encounter misinformation or is words along those lines that if we really want to change people's who have taken on the, the false information, if we want to get them out of that position, it, it, it's almost laboratory conditions to get them out of that. And I think that that's kind of worrying because we're, we're you know, you, you can, create the studies and so on. But to do that under the kind of the scale at which we need this to get back to the shared reality that you're talking about, I, I, I'm just, I'm at a loss to understand how we're going to get to that, those conditions in, in a more widespread sense. Well, it, it will require that we're actually all sticking to some version of the truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that... Uh, uh, no, we find ways of uh, not spreading every nonsense that comes around, to not repeat false information, uh, even if it comes from the president and you feel that you have to tell people that he lied again. Yeah. Uh, 
you can say that he lied again, but you don't have to repeat the lie. Exactly. You can say, once again, the president spent his day lying. <laughs> but you do not have to repeat the lie. Um, yeah. But uh, no, let me let, let, let me no, say a few words on that. Uh, there's a lot of effort about media literacy, and you can group the Twitter and the Facebook uh, efforts under that rubric, right? I mean, they're basically ways of informing you that you should check where it comes from, that you should look at the website, that you should see if the website is uh, has a long history or was recently put there and so on. All of which is fine. And there are programs in schools that teach people that, and it works under, it, it works very nicely under these school conditions. When you have all the time and somebody's asking you and you're thinking about it, you get it right. Mm -hmm. But just like you didn't notice the Moses thing, even so you know, if I asked you, you know, what's the name of the guy with the ark, that probably it wasn't Moses. Uh, you are not applying that knowledge in a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You're applying that knowledge when you step back and you say, okay, now, I mean, before I write that down in my chapter, let me look up that paper again, if I remember it right. But in the conversation, we don't do that. And a lot of social media is a conversation. It's a conversation we have with our friend. We're kind of sucked into this. It feels interpersonal. It doesn't feel that important. We're not feeling we documents this for eternity. Mm -hmm. And we're less alert to that. And at that level, uh, many of these things that seem so reasonable and that are helpful to some degree are simply not having that much effect. So we can convey that knowledge. Mm. We can uh, get people to apply it in situations that they identify as important. But we haven't figured out how we get them to say, this is the situation where I should apply it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a weak point, right? I mean, most people would know how to figure out if something is true and would know how to fact check. Yeah. The catch is not, it's good to teach you how to fact check, but that you know how to fact check does not mean you will do it. Yes. And that's what we need to figure out. We need to figure out what are the elements that would prompt you to be a little bit suspicious and how can we trigger those things in order to have you apply the knowledge that you have. Yes, and it's, I, I mean, we're, we're, I'm running out of time here and I don't want to take up too much, but I'm absolutely fascinated by what you're, what you're saying to me. And it just strikes me, it reminds me a little bit of, um, so I, I don't know if you know, Dana Boyd, made this point about media literacy about two years ago and uh i've had conversations with with uh various organizations here about media literacy too and it sort of struck me that as you say these school programs they they work very well and they are that's you know within that environment that's going to be something that's certainly worth looking at but there's also the problem i think that and dana boyd said this and People came back at her and sort of criticized what she said, but I never found any of the responses to her particularly compelling. But when she said that the, the, we may have an issue here when we're talking about media literacy is that we want people to engage in critical thinking, but kind of only a particular type of critical thinking. And maybe the problem that we have now is that a lot of people are doing critical thinking a little bit too much and taking things yeah. apart yeah. way too much. And it kind of leads me to believe that, you know, 
we do want people to do critical thinking and we want them to, you know, criticize the information that they're, or, you know, be careful about the information we're receiving, but we do want them to get to the one conclusion. And that's sort of, you know, that liberal democracy is a good idea and that, you know, not going the other way. We don't want them to, we do have already concluded what we want them to conclude. I, yeah. I think, I don't know if you've thought anything about that, but I do think you know, she might be wrong in the, broader sense but i do think there's something there about like teaching critical thinking for the sake of critical thinking and what exactly are we encouraging people to do and are there some sort of structures that we need to put in place around that or some sort of ethos that needs to go around that have you thought anything along those lines yeah i mean it's uh, it's a tricky one right because all the things that we say uh, that we would want people to do, check the source and so on. You could just as well put on Breitbart and say, check all these other things. And what they're saying about the lamestream mainstream media is not that different. Mm -hmm. That you shouldn't believe them, you should double check everything, just tune out, you know, don't repeat what they say. Uh, it's not that different because, of course, information spreads the same way. And I mean, you know, um, you can be uh, wherever you are on the political spectrum, you run around with a very similar brain and you end up showing very similar behavioral tendencies with different content. Yeah. And all the stuff that uh, we would find helpful uh, can also be the stuff that makes you distrust uh, the sources that we think would be credible sources. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, not all of these things hold. So I mean, you are in your alt-right network and you find all these uh, liberal messages completely incredible and absurd uh, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, the, and psychologically, these are very similar, very similar processes. Yeah, um, which which is kind of concerning. And I guess it, it's, it does go back a bit, I suppose, to um, what you were saying about do you actually have the time to do this? Do you have the time to go through all of this process to do these things? Because more often than not, you generally don't. And but it is ultimately, and it's as well what you were saying about that with the fake news and the misinformation. It's generally not. It's not that far away. It's not completely fake news. There's generally a grain of truth there but it's the interpretation of it and it's the conclusions yeah. that they read. So it makes a very subtle sort of problem cognitively because you're not completely ruling out the whole thing. They're not making stories up. They're basing them on something and then exacerbating it somewhere along the way. And I think that's, that's difficult because I presume it goes very much into how normal conversation is anyway, is that people sort of exaggerate things to get this, to get the message passed. So, so it does leave us in, a very, uh, a very kind of, it's, it's a complicated space, but I think ultimately, I think what you're saying is not to repeat the false information is the main thing to keep at the heart of these messages that if this, we are going to get past fake news and so on, that be the core to it. And if you have to repeat it for some reason, uh, since the thing that works if you have to repeat it so your, your best bet is to change the focus of what you're doing so if i if i if i have to tell you that the president lied and what he lied about 
I have to use the following structure. I first have to tell you that what you will now hear is false. Mm-hmm. So that I can avoid that you start immediately making up reasons for why this may have happened, right? Just like in the suicide example. So I have to tell you, I'm now going to tell you that the president lied and said something that is wrong, and I will tell you why. Uh, what he said is this blah, blah, blah. This is wrong for the following reasons, blah, blah, blah. And he said it because it's good for him for the following reasons, blah, 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 blah. So that your story becomes a story about why the president lied. Yes. Not a story that just conveys the lie. Yes. And you want people not to think about why might that wrong statement be true? Mm-hmm. But why might that guy make a statement as absurd as that? Yes, yes. Right? Become... You want to shortcut this point where Kieran sits there and says, Yes, I knew Susie in first grade. <laughs> you want Kieran to think, Why is this crazy psychologist telling me this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh... You know, I think that's a it's, a it's a really useful way of putting it. And it, it becomes less of a transmission then and more of a conversation because you're starting to get back into the intentionality of it and getting mm-hmm. people to think about about the, the false information on a different level rather than simply putting it on. Um, Professor Schwartz, it's been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all evening. Um, I... I've run out of questions. <laughs> um, and so I will thank you very much for your time. Unless there's anything else that you would like to add, uh, I, I think you've left our, our audience with an awful lot to think about. And uh, Nothing new. Just do not repeat false information. Repeat false information. Um, well, I, I think that's a great one to, um, to, to leave this on. And I will... Uh, thank you very much for your time. So there you have it. Uh, that was Professor Norbert Schwartz, whose chapter is The Psychology of Fake News in the book uh, Psychological Insights for Understanding COVID and Media and Technology. Um, there it is there. Um, the address to find out more about the book will be coming along your screen shortly, and you can find out more about it in the information below. And please don't forget to like and subscribe and share this podcast with everyone who you think would be interested in it. There will be more coming up fairly soon. Uh, As I say, in this series, we're talking about uh, to a variety of international experts about these sort of topics. So we're going to be talking about conspiracy theories. We're going to be talking about social media. We're going to be talking about online relationships and all that sort of thing. So stay tuned. There will be more coming in your direction very soon. Thank you and goodbye.